that during the camp meetings, he would just listen to it. He would look at his wife. And when the Lord would speak to him through a sermon, he would write down write down the lyrics or he would write down the tune and his wife would write down the lyrics. By the end of the sermon, they would have completed the song, would teach it to the congregation. And by the end of camp meeting, they would have published a little hymn book. Well, if you have a person like this, it was inspiring other people to praise the Lord. And so now it was no longer about, wow, did you hear what this person preached about? No, just take the song because it was a memorial of what they had heard of. And they wanted to take it in their various communities and then go from there. It was just accompanying this great revival and reformation. The Lineage Journey Podcast, unscripted conversations that aim to help you on the journey of discovering your lineage. Join us as we take a deeper look into past lineage episodes and see the lessons we can learn for today. Hi everyone, my name is Adam Ramden. I'm here with Lineage Journey, our Lineage Journey Podcast. I'd like to welcome you to this presentation. Today we have a guest who is an expert in his field, and we're going to be covering the very interesting and important, sometimes controversial, subject of music in Christianity, music in church history, music in Adventism, and we're going to see the role that it's played and and the different um, challenges and and what would you say, victories that it's had uh, throughout our shared history. Our guest with us today is Dr. Erwin Nanasi. He is currently a pastor in Oklahoma. Uh, Welcome, Erwin. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. And just a little bit more about your background. You recently just did finish your doctoral studies, if I'm correct, right? Right. Well, it has been quite a journey. Obviously, my roots are in Germany and my parents from Romania and Hungary Mm -hmm. and so forth. And uh, as I transitioned as a missionary in the Arctic and then in America, did study theology and leadership, but eventually studied worship studies, which I really wanted to study. And uh, because not a lot of institutions are offering that degree to begin with, it has been a joy. And I was able to do that at Liberty University, which was interesting too, because some of uh, Adventist hymnody actually also uh, is derived a bit from Baptist hymnody. And so it was interesting to be there and write about it and research about it and talk with other people about it. And so um, that has been a little bit of my academic journey, if you will. Okay. And um, yeah, I've been uh, working with um, musicians and worship leaders and pastors for several years now and has been a joy to see that, not just in American context, but also somewhat worldwide. Sure, sure. Well, I've always appreciated your music and your playing. Um, you played for my wedding. Yeah, I, I did. Kind of not important to our audience, but... <laughs> <laughs> but music at a wedding is important. Imagine a wedding without music. It wouldn't go well. They wouldn't. No, yeah, no, because no. it's a worship It's a worship service, and that's the beauty of music. So music is integral if you think of, um, you know, birth of Christ, right? Or the way that he was dedicated and mm. uh, the way that he was inaugurated, if you will, by the people. They were singing Hosanna as they're coming in, even when he was going to the cross right before he was singing the hymn with the disciples. Music was part of his life. Music is part of the Christian life because of that. Yeah. Weddings, funerals. I mean, you just think of the main events. I mean, today you even have music in the elevator. Or the doctor's office. People recognize that music yeah. is important. It's a key part of our life. So we're going to look at music in our current Adventist history, music in the Reformation, music before the Reformation. Yes. Or New Testament, Old Testament. So I'm not sure where best to start. I mean, maybe a quick question. What? Maybe you've answered a little bit. What What role has music played in religion and, and should it play? Yeah. I think that's a really good, really good question. Um, music is a gift from God. And uh, it's something that we see from the very beginning, uh, not necessarily chronologically in the Bible, but it's obvious that in uh, Job, it's mentioned that the sons of God, if you will, were shouting for joy. Mm. We recognize that. We also see that God himself is rejoicing over us with singing, Zephaniah, right? Mm-hmm. And so you you see that there's mentioning of music ever so often, and you just think, wow, is that perhaps a language of heaven? Is it so melodious that it's something that he gave to us 
And he didn't need to. It's like, you know, food. You didn't need to make food tasty. You could have just made it functional, you know. But he made it, you know, beautiful. You can look at it. You can taste it. You can, the sensories are involved. And music is is like that as well. And um, quickly enough, you notice that there is a great controversy even with music because it can be used for good or for bad. Mm-hmm. And just an example, you know, some people wrongfully, I believe, uh, think that music is a spiritual gift. No, music is a natural talent, mm. and the Lord can give that to anyone. In fact, we know this because in Revelation chapter 18, out of the sudden you you see that in Babylon, there will no longer be the poet and no longer will be the musician heard. So obviously there are people that can use this talent uh, you know, for the wrong reasons. But sometimes you see that God takes a natural talent, like in the sanctuary service in the Old Testament, and he is dedicating and anointing the workers of the sanctuary and say, okay, now I want this to be dedicated for a spiritual purpose. And so I think that you see that as well in the Old and New Testament, also throughout history, that music, when not dedicated to the Lord and anointed for his purposes, that it can do a lot of harm because it is so powerful. It goes straight to the emotion, right? I mean, you have the little kids there maybe at the at a store and they're right in front of the television and the music is playing and they're just moving to the music mm. and you think, Oh my, look at my kid. It's just what anything. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> it just goes straight to the emotional, emotional part of the brain. And it's, it's really activating people to move, activating people to do things that they otherwise wouldn't. And so the older you get, the more cognitive you are about your movements and also about your worship. And God, I think wants us to be engaged with our body, mind and soul. And so music is actually something that can activate that, especially when you think of congregational worship. I mean, there's a reason why we sing before messages or why we have appeal songs. Because it's saying, hey, we want all of you to be engaged in making this decision Mm -hmm. for God. We've got the music plays an integral role. Obviously, it goes back. You said it has good and bad. We we understand that Lucifer or Satan was a musician in heaven. And so he... He understands the role that music plays and probably manipulates it, no doubt, to, mm-hmm. to his own effect. But we're not really going to go into that side of music right. today. But in the Bible, you have the Old Testament where you've got the Psalms, which is essentially, you know. It's a hymn book. It's a hymn book of, of, of David. You come to the New Testament and there's not as much or much music. And we often say, well, we're, you know, our heritage today is the New Testament mm. Christian church. Wow, that's a good one. Yeah. So, if our heritage is in the New Testament Christian church, there's not much music there, but you've got all these hymns in, in Psalms. Why maybe the disconnect or is that just a false disconnect? Right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The way that I can explain it is perhaps that uh, thinking of the Romans that had these uh, the, the, the power uh, during those days and really were forcing everyone to worship the emperor, mm-hmm. it made it fairly difficult for them to just up in the open worship God in song and in their prayers as they usually would. However, you do see that when Paul and Silas got thrown in prison, guess what they're doing? I mean, they're, right, they have nothing to lose anymore. So they're like, let's actually worship God. And so they end up singing. And you see that in Paul's writings as well. He says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So now he really specifically says, your Lord is Christ. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he says, in teaching, admonishing one another, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, why didn't he just say, hey, just make music for the Lord? Well, it seems that he was a bit more specific than that. He said, listen, there are the Psalms. They are there for your teaching. And the the Psalms include, you know, fairly all the doctrines that we hold on to. I mean, you see prophecy there, the sanctuary is there, the the Sabbath is there, the second coming is there. All the things are there in in the hymns, in the Psalms, if you will. Then he says, in the hymns. Now, this is a new word now, because hymns is from the Greek, and it was just an homage to a deity, if you will. It says these hymns as well. So that may be part of admonishing one another and then uh, spiritual songs. You see that he's specifying them because they all have a purpose. And sometimes just think, just transition for today right now. There is variety even in the music of God. Some of them have to do with the teaching. Some of them have to do with explicitly talking about Christ. But some of them are also as an encouragement from me to you. And that's why he said, hey, when we come together... Um, let the Holy Spirit lead, but not all at once. You know, one after another, you may have a song, you may have, a, you know, a prophecy, you may have. Well, back in the day, it must have been that the Lord may have taken over that you would come to worship and say, the Lord has given me a song to sing. And so you see some of these songs fashioned even after that say, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Now, this may sound like a you know, lament or straight going into gossip of how bad your life is. But not this song. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows the trouble mm-hmm. I've seen. Glory. Hallelujah. Glory. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, this sounds very much fashioned like a lament. In the Bible, mm. it says, I'm doing bad. Lord, don't forsake me. Look at the enemies. They're thriving. What about me? And mm. the Lord is, okay, hold on. Watch me. Behold me. And while you're doing that, you're like, okay, Lord, you're on your throne. I understand. You will carry me through. Mm. And there's just something that happens when this is your song and you sing it. And there's somebody else who says, Adam, I was really blessed by what you were singing. I want to join you in this song. Mm. And so before you know it, you have somebody that starts singing and people that start repeating. And that is somewhat the concept that you see then played out uh, throughout the history of time, especially then as it gets to the Reformation. So music was not music was not uh, marginalized or neglected in the early Christian church. It just wasn't as highlighted um, because you had the various factors of the suppression of a, a leading country that said, hey, we don't want you to sing like this. We don't sure. want you to pray. So you don't see it as often, but it was definitely there. And Revelation makes 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 clear that, you know, there's a lot of song also in heaven and also of those that are going to be living at the end time. Okay, okay. Well, all right. So we've got Old Te- sorry, New Testament. If we progress forward, I mean, this is a huge swath of history, but right. let's go forward basically a thousand years or mm. so. So now we're deep in what is called the Dark Ages. We're deep in the time when, at least in Western Europe, there's only one religion or one church or one denomination. You've got the Catholic Church. Yes. What role is is music playing there and and what does it look like in the church at that time? Say like 11 or 1200s. What what does music look like for the average person who goes to church on a weekend? Do they sing? Do they not sing? Do they listen to it? What's it look like? You already had part of the answer in there. If you wanted to access music, it was only if you were in the church or if you were with clergy, which often was also coming to church, right? So they they came to church and that was the hub of getting access to music. And the music of that day would then include maybe the instruments that they had, although in 12th 12th and 13th, 1300s, not quite as much. But... You have the development of singing in such a way that it's no, not really about the buying in of other people. It is about what the clergy is able to perform up front for the people. We are teaching you. We went to the monasteries. So it's a performance. Yes, it's a performance. And so we are up front and obviously much of it was... Is that like Gregorian... Gregorian chant that came, that came as an outflow of that. Okay. As right. an outflow of that. So Gregorian chant then... You know, for those that are not acquainted with it, although you could, uh, you know, search for it, Gregorian chant would be music that essentially puts a text, um, and uh, the text that you have from the from the scripture, you would just try to put a melody on it. Okay. But you would sing it in in unison, and you would sing it only with a melody without any harmony added. So once they had the printed paper, there are some depictions of artists that have painted it, where you have one person. Kind of holding up a sheet and then people just surrounding them like in a half circle and trying mm. to read from the same sheet. Okay. And the music is fairly difficult uh, to 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 re- yeah, reproduce. Them, kind of... Yeah, and it's it's really not it's really <clears throat> not something that people let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Like, okay, where are we going with this? You know, and then mm-hmm. somebody just repeats that maybe after. And so later on, when the Reformation came about, they said, "Listen, we want people to be engaged. Is God only there for the clergy? Is it only there for for?" For, for people that speak Latin, this was what I just so saying was already too advanced because it was in Latin. Different language and only one person leading. So it's Latin, one person leads. Right. The congregation is not involved. No, they're just listening. They're just because listening. Because God is on his throne and you better be quiet. Okay. Because you're in his house. It was almost like watching a sermon right. kind of thing. You're not in, engaging in it. Oh, you're, you're not. The only, the only way that you're engaging is you better bring your offering. And if you're not bringing uh-huh. enough of an offering or you're paying for you know, whatever else that needs yeah, to be yeah. paid for, then you have no room here. So the Reformation comes, and, and how does the role of music switch, or how, how does it progress or change? The Reformation really throws this upside down and harkens back to the roots in the Old Testament. Okay. And so the reason why I think it's worth mentioning is because in the Old Testament, you notice that whenever sacrifices were brought to the sanctuary, it was accompanied with songs. There were, in fact, was no 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 uh, no sacrifices given without uh, without the music. Now, in the beginning, it was just you know the elders and maybe the priest singing. But then, when David recognized what it says in the five books of Moses, says that there was rejoicing, he interpreted that as singing. And so, with David, you now see that there's songs involved, and you also see that he's submitting instruments. And in the beginning, it says the instruments of David, and then it says the instruments of God. You see that there's a transition mm. of the instruments of David because he submitted, and it says it clearly in the text in Chronicles, he submitted to Gad and Nathan, who were the prophets, and they're like, hey, we think this is a good idea. And then you see that they were included in worship. So we have the harp, 
and the lyre, and we have the cymbals. And after that, when there was a great reformation, where you see with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Hezekiah, and so forth, you see these instruments mentioned accompanying the singing. And so what I think is important to, to, to notice, especially in the reformation, is they recognized that the reason why we still now call it a song service is because while we are no longer sacrificing a lamb, that time of singing is supposed to hearken back to the great sacrifice of the Lamb of God. It is a service of song. It's not a performance. It's not just, hey, I'm doing this for you or I'm just doing this for God. No. In that moment, you are facilitating for God's people to recognize his sacrifice and for the voices of the people to be heard to worship him as an expression of appreciation of that sacrifice. Mm. And so the Reformation then said, okay, listen, people need to understand what they're being sung to, and they want to sing not just with the Spirit, but with understanding also, as Paul says. So we need to sing in our own language. That was change number one. Mm. Let's sing in our own language. Now, so that's a key shift. That is a key so we shift. We go from Latin to yes. German, English, yes. Yes. whatever, French. And that, that in and of itself already changes it tremendously. Mm-hmm. Because music was primarily sacred during those times, but it wasn't a different language. So it really didn't hit home. It didn't recognize, you know, what was being said. But now you have the change of, of language. So imagine somebody comes and then they start singing, holy, holy, holy. And you're like, wow, this is my language. And then he looks at you. The leader looks at you and says, you repeat after me. And now the people all together go, holy, holy, holy. He continues, Lord God Almighty. And they're like, Lord, I mean, you, it, you to hit the heart. it does, it hits the heart. And out of the sudden you have a congregation who is no longer just made to feel that they are, you know, too stupid to worship God because they have no degree. They have not learned the languages. Now you know? they're participating. Now they're participating. They're saying, no, God can be approached by you. So which, was there a particular reformer as a starter? Was it just kind of general across the board? Did, did Luther have a role in this or Calvin or... Or both of them? Was there a difference? Or, or yeah. I mean, Many I, of them obviously were were. Was it just organic? The same time we translated the Bible, we're translating hymns. Or right, music, music. You know, took part of worship. You know, throughout the times. But as it, as it relates to the person who could be coined back to having made a, a very significant change for an entire nation, I think worldwide was Martin Luther. Okay. Martin Luther, because he had this <clears throat> natural talent of music of not just being a good singer and well able of caring with his voice, but also being a writer. So he was the guy that also wrote music. And because he was so creative, he said, why should we only sing in unison? Let's just sing in a way that everybody can join. Not everybody can sing the melodies that high. Let's add an alto, let's add a tenor, let's add a bass part. And he would write it out, all four parts. In fact, wow. he was very strong statements of saying, if you're a teacher, I will not even look at you unless you are capable of writing music. Or singing in worship. I mean, he was intense. And so imagine this. He starts with changing the language. He also then writes his own music. And he takes music to the next level of making it also in harmony. So now people are really joining. And uh, the clergy was fairly upset about this. In fact, they used this as a theological battle against him. They said, Luther, the Bible says the Lord our God is one. So we shall sing Gregorian chants in unison. Wow. But Luther came back and said, listen, there's three in one, the Blessed Trinity, if you check on it. And so he then said, your understanding of God is very limited and in fact is unbiblical. And we will not only continue to sing, we will continue to sing in harmony. And so that really changed everything. So he's the one that brought harmony into Christianity. Very much so. And guess who he inspired? Some years later, Johann Sebastian Bach was reading about Luther and he was inspired by the hymns that he wrote and many of the arrangements he started were based on hymns that Luther had written and he just then made them more magnificent with arranging them wow. in ways that then, you know, went over. Uh, and we still, today, you know, people would say that Johann Sebastian Bach is like the Old Testament for musicians. There's no way that can, can pass by of recognizing the rich heritage of that music. That's fascinating. I mean, I don't know much about, I, I'm not studied the music like right. you are, but I didn't know that these parts and that, is really a Reformation thing too. Oh yeah, oh totally, totally. And so then, as it was, it something that was going on outside of Christian circles, and he brought it in, or he kind of invented it. No, he was kind of the person that, from what we know, that really made it most most popular for the churches to adopt and say, "Hey, this is really working well. Let's let's make this happen." Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting today that 
you know, when you look at someone who still sings hymns, it's like, wow, you're such a conservative. But back then you were such you were a like liberal. Progressive. You were like <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, for lack of a better term, you were really, you really advanced in applying it and saying, hey, this is what we're doing. And Luther got in some trouble because he wanted the gospel to be preached in such a way that people were recognizing that it's relevant to them. Obviously, he changed the, the language to the vernacular. He also was writing about that with Bible translation. And he, you know, he adds the different, uh, the different parts to it and stuff. But uh, some people took offense because he noticed that there were some songs that they would sing in the beer tents and whatever else that were really good melodies. And he recognized people really, they like the melodies. And so he said, hey, listen, why should the devil only have the good melodies? Mm -hmm. So he would just take the melody and he would put Christian lyrics to them. Sanct in, in sanctified, if you will. And people loved it. Now, there are others who looked down upon that and said, nah, we should not have that. And you see that even to this day with a person like Swingley, another reformer, right? Who then brought, brought, brought a, a, another, another perspective to that, which some Puritans really held on to. They said, nah, we should not have any other song be just, you know, Christianized, if you will. We're not going to do that because it is an influence of the world. So our songs have to be written by us. They cannot be adopted. Number two, we should not have any instruments being added because they're made by the works of men. No instruments whatsoever. Now, some of the reformers would agree with that because, you know, the, the very um, ornamentation of the organs back in there, they said it was idol worship. Get the well, organ out. Let's unpack that a little bit more. Yeah. You, as you brought up instruments. So, yeah. I mean, we see instruments in the Bible. Yes. Um, and so now you're saying there's there's contention about whether instruments should be even be in church what's the role of instrument in fact yeah let's unpack that a little bit now yeah. i think there's a confluence of things historically as you see because now that the music the the vocal music became um you know transitioned to the vernacular so people mm -hmm. sang in their own language they also noticed that much more in uh, much more input was coming from the various people groups mm -hmm. that were now singing so worship now goes to to everybody um, however, we also see a transition that music was not only being performed in the churches, but it also started being performed in secular, uh, in secular uh, venues more fully. And when this, this shift happened, you see that in God's churches, most of the time they were known for sacred music that was vocal. And uh, then secular music was mostly known for being instrumental. And uh, that was an interesting transition. And th the reason may be because when you're singing, you have to actually put words to your worship. Yeah. So notice in Daniel chapter 3, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, you will hear the music, yeah, then yeah. bow down. You have no mention whatsoever of, Lyric. of lyrics. It is just, what would they have said? Oh, bow down to this great golden image. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, so there's something that gives way, you know, with the words. That's why words and the, the accompaniment has to match. But um, the Old Testament does mention, does mention instruments. You have... The one instrument that God actually ordained specifically for worship, and some people miss that. They think it's the harp, but it's actually the trumpet. The number okay. chapter 10, you can see that. Uh -huh. The one silver trumpet, second silver trumpet, the shofar horn. Um, and then you have the various instruments that then David added, and the Lord was very pleased with that. And he added them, added them as well. You have to recognize that the instruments were there to support the lyrics, not to supplant them. You will not see a worship in the Old or New Testament where it's, uh, it's just a... Um, a, a instrumental instrumental piece per se it was typically accompanied okay. and so you see the different and that's why the the worship wars come come into play here as well we don't have to tap into that but the, obviously the symbol is being used but you see that the symbol was being used by the leader typically by the leader and you, you, we cannot over you know superimpose a western worldview on the biblical text uh, jewish music is not as metric as ours is and so you have some of the some of the more percussive instrument and percussion there's some pitched percussive instrument and unpitched percussive instrument we can get into that at another point but um, when they're used they were used by the leaders and they may be used between the verses the stances so that you have hundreds of people that know hey this is the stanza when it's starting again and when you see the drums being used you typically have seen them used by uh, the virgins if you will by the by the ladies they were using them and it was often a response to hey we have done well in war we want to recognize you know that somebody has done extensively well like Saul and David he killed a thousand oh they killed ten thousand and they were playing on their on their hand drum uh, Miriam when they crossed the Red Sea they were just rejoicing over that and so yeah there's there's drums uh, drums are being used in the Bible but you don't necessarily see that being used in the worship service neither did you see females you know uh, leading out in the worship services so there's all of these 
these things that you need to look in more carefully when you extrapolate some principle from them. You can't say, well, there's no drums and bells. No, they are, but how were they used? You know, well, you know, were females uh, also able to lead in worship? Well, yeah, they were, but in what setting? And how, how did it work? And what effect can that have? And I think today we have to look at some of those items as well. But in the Old Testament, you see that instruments were being used. In the New Testament, you also see that some instruments are being used. And obviously the 44,000, 144,000 uh, have a harp in their hand, right? And they're going to be using that instrument as well. So it's something that, that goes along with. But if you think of the Christian church, many times persecuted for their faith, and being in the mountains and being, you know, in the forest and, and whatnot, often they didn't have the privilege of having you the instruments. Choice, you used your own yeah. voice. And with that, you also have to understand, if you look at American history with the slaves and so forth, with the music that you have there, sometimes there was no instruments, but the body was used as an extension for the instrument. So when you made a loud shout, well, guess what? If you were stripped of all of your instruments, you're going to clap. You're going to stump your feet. You're going to shout, you know, because... That is, that is part of you expressing yourself in a way that you now can, um, you know, respond to the Lord's deliverance. And so you see the, the various developments that way. But the instruments in the Western culture, especially in Europe, um, because they were so ornamented and that, you know, with the artwork that came, came with it, many rejected it and said, no, this is just drawing too much attention to the instrument and not drawing attention to the Lord. And so there was the schism of people and congregations that decided no we're only going to use we're only going to use um vocal music and we're not going to utilize instruments at all so if you go to to switzerland today to zurich um you will not find a thick hymn book there in many of the churches you will find a very thin hymn book and you know what it is in the vernacular it has no instruments whatsoever the melody has only one line no harmony no harmony whatsoever and the lyrics are precisely what it is in the biblical text from the Psalms. Not even hymns, poetry, so to speak, that is based on the Bible could be utilized because that was tainted with the world. It had to be exactly the text. That's the text. And so um, it's interesting, right, to see it that way because when you think of Adventist heritage in our hymnal, obviously that there are, there, there are songs that were based on the Bible, but they were expounding on it just like we have sermons today. And um, you also see that there are some songs that you could see even in secular settings, like "Oh Danny Boy" is a song that we have in the yeah. hymnal. So I cannot tell. And so you can see that uh, our uh, our uh, our heritage uh, here also is at is playing into it in our understanding of you know music, music and worship. Okay, well, gonna take a little break here. This is fascinating. Um, we've looked at music in the Bible, touched on Old Testament, New Testament. We've touched on Gregorian chants, Reformation. We've touched on, I find fascinating, the beginning of parts in music mm -hmm. and how that came into mm -hmm. uh, Christian singing and so on. We still are going to look at what role music plays generally in our movement. We're going to unpack a little bit more about original music today. Mm. And and uh, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you some of what some of your favorite hymn writers are. So those of you who are listening, just stay with us. We're just going to take a short break now. This is Lineage Journey Podcast. Thank you for joining us. And we'll be back with you after our short break. Lineage is a non-profit organization kept running by generous donors like you. Support us today on patreon.com forward slash lineage journey. History shapes identity. Identity shapes mission. And a clear mission determines the trajectory of your future. Knowing where you come from is key to understanding your present purpose and your future mission. Lineage Journey is a series of videos that will take you on a journey through time, discovering the key people and events that have shaped the Christian faith. From the Waldenses to Martin Luther to Zwingli, from England to France, Switzerland to Germany, the light broke over the horizon of Europe, piercing through the Dark Ages and then spread out over the world. As the United States of America rose to supremacy, Christianity formed the bedrock of this great nation. And so from the Great Awakening to the Great Disappointment and beyond, Lineage follows the journey of God's church throughout time, immersing you in the places, the stories, and the people through whom Christianity has shone the brightest. Join us on a journey through time. Follow us on social media at Lineage Journey or check out our website at lineagejourney.com. Has finding a church pianist been a struggle for you? We understand. 
That's why we developed the Nohem app. Nohem is an iPhone and Android app which includes piano accompaniments of all 695 hymns from the current Seventh-day Adventist hymnal. Yep, you heard that right. And no, it doesn't sound like an emotionless synthesized MIDI keyboard. The hymns are recorded in real time, over 45 hours worth of piano recordings. Wow. The app also includes the lyrics as well as the background stories and biographical sketches of the authors and composers of each hymn. To donate or download the app, visit our website at www.knowhymn.com. Lillian's Journey not only produces video content, but instructive and illuminating resources to teach young and old about Christian history. Lineage has produced an educational coloring book for people of all ages. It includes original artwork from Ashley Bloom, highlighting the various heroes of the Reformation. Each scene has a matching story, and there are also QR codes to connect you to the website for more information and to watch the videos. There are also fun facts and memorable quotes to accompany the scenes to color in. Designed for young and old alike, get your copy now at lineagejourney.com. Welcome back, everyone. Appreciate you being with us on this journey as we go into different aspects of our history. And we're here with Dr. Erwin Nanasi as we're looking at the role that music has played in the Reformation, in religion, in Adventism, and so on. And we've looked at a fascinating history. We've gone back to the Bible, pre-Reformation and Reformation. And so now we're kind of picking up. So we've looked at the role that Luther's played. Kind of let's fast forward a little bit now to like the last 150 years or so. Like, what role has music played in Adventism? We, we, we know of our early pioneers singing hymns. We, we hear about, you know, some of those stories. So what's our kind of background, the heritage, and where do, where do we kind of pick up? Well, let's pick up with uh, a person that is probably known to most Seventh-day Adventists, that's James White. Yeah. Uh, James White is, is the person that uh, in 1843 in a little town of Litchfield Plains in Maine in the winter, um, he just came about and uh, he began a service very dramatically by just marching down the center aisle of the meeting house and was beating on his Bible. <laughs> and he was probably walking. I do that sometimes, right? Start in the back of the church. And he was pounding on his Bible while seeing, you will see the Lord coming. You will see the Lord coming. You will see the Lord coming in a few mm. more days. And people are joining with him, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, wow, what song is this? And then he continues. While the band of music. Did he make the, this one up? Well, he didn't He didn't write this one, but he, he was definitely you know, okay. performing it. Yeah, yeah. And so it is something that he shared that he wanted to have buy-in with other people. And he did it even without any instruments or any other aid, just the vocal music itself. And often later then instruments would be added. And obviously his son uh, played the, the, the piano or the organ. And so it came from there. But that's somewhat the, the starting point long before the church was organized in 1863. And James was a person who said, singing is so important that the first official Seventh-day Adventist hymnal was published uh, under the title, Hymns for Those Who Keep the Commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That's a serious title. <laughs> I mean, that's solid, right? That's a solid title right here. And it was published on the Seam Press on the Seventh-day Adventist Publishing Association in Battle Creek, Michigan in 1869. So there was not a whole lot of time after the church was organized that they recognized we got to have songs that all of us can be passionate mm. about. And I would submit to any Christian listening to this podcast right now that it would be good for us to have a repertoire of songs where you don't just know the first verse or maybe the first words. But you actually know, you know, the entirety of the song to see the progression of the sermon. Many times that was what it was. Mm -hmm. The sermon was just a summary of a Someone sermon. Tells a message. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so cutting out verse three or four, well, you may not get the entire sermon that way. You know. Yeah. So <clears throat> it is. It's definitely something that comes in very beautifully. And some of the hymnals 
cannot editorially include all the 12 verses that were there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, if it was worth mentioning in sermon, it was worth singing about. And so today, if uh, you are a preacher and you're listening to this, preach sermons that are worth singing about. Mm-hmm. Because there may be an artist in your congregation who will Thanks. listen to it and says, I like this so much that I am going to write a song about it. And then the world will sing it afterwards. Hmm. So we've got James White. So right at the time of the great disappointment, you've got music integral as part of the the religious experience from the beginning. Well, and obviously the, the Adventist Church wasn't formed and it came about 20 years later. Mm-hmm. You've got music kind of integral in the movement from the very beginning. And all of the titles of these hymnals were really intense. I mean, you have another one in... Uh... 1886, and that one was entitled The Seventh-day Adventist Hymn and Tune Book for Use in Divine Worship. And uh, that was also known as the Hymns and Tunes, which many people remember from that name. Uh, Over 1,413 songs, and they were categorized in various sections um, that were, you know, correlating with some of the doctrines that we were holding on to. And that hymnal was actually reprinted a number of times in 1930 and then even after, uh, you know, up to 1941 or so. Um, what many people don't realize is that the song that some may have known for it's called uh, Christ in Song was written by uh, F. E. Belden. Now, um, Belden was a prolific, a prolific writer. Franklin Edson Belden. Around what year did he live? <clears throat> Franklin Edson Belden was born in 1858 and he died in 1945. Okay. Now, Belden is this this guy that you may have heard about when they used to have camp meetings that during the camp meetings, he would just listen to it. He would look at his wife. And when the Lord would speak to him through a sermon, he would write down he would write down the lyrics or he would write down the tune and his wife would write down the lyrics. By the end of the sermon, they would have completed the song, would teach it to the congregation. And by the end of camp meeting, they would have published a little hymn book. Wow. Well, if you have a person like this, it was inspiring other people to praise the Lord. And so now it was no longer about, wow, did you hear what this person preached about? No, just take the song because it was a memorial of what they had heard of. And they wanted to take it in their various communities and then go from there. It was just accompanying this great revival and reformation. And so music has this power of sharing that in a way that is very memorable. And that is one of the purposes of music, to store in our minds the things that God has done. Look at the Psalms. I mean, it's like if the Lord has done this for them, can he do it for us? Yes, he can. Sing about it. And your, your faith is growing. And as you're singing, even if you're not believing it, as you're singing, it's like, I might as well believe what I'm singing because this is, yeah. if this is actually happening, this is amazing. And that's what we're doing, right? Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto thee. And so you're, 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 you're edifying the church body. And so uh, when he published that hymnal in um, 1900, and uh, it was uh, revised and then published again in 1908 with nearly a thousand songs, uh, a, a thousand numbers, uh, it was supposed to be that last hymn, hymn book because he thought the Lord is going to come and this is going to be him. Original song. Many of them were original by him, by him. And so a lot of people really enjoyed it. Now, there was a little bit of a fallout, if you read about it more fully. Uh, Belden had uh, written, um, had compiled this, this hymnal, and the General Conference really enjoyed that. And like with uh, James, uh, James White's books, um, they often would come and ask them, hey, could we adopt this hymnal? A lot of people are singing it. It's in circulation already. Can we adopt it and make it an official hymnal? And many times they would agree. Belden, in fact, um, he agreed and he said, if you'd be so kind that any revenue that is coming from these hymnals that you would put toward evangelism, that would be really fitting for the purpose. And so they came up with this amount that seemed so high for them at that time, saying, you know, $30,000. If it reached the $30,000, um, you know, then we already had done a good job. Well, the General Conference understood it that uh, if it was more than the 30000 then they could allocate the money to whatever they pleased, wherever it was most needed. Well, Belden, the artist that he was, got a little emotional about it. And he said, I don't really like that. I think it would have been better for you to just continue to put it to evangelism as you see the Lord has been blessing towards this end. And so he wrote an over 40-page letter, I think, to the conference president and outlined the reasons and says, you know, maybe it should just be our publishing house that is in charge of it and then we'll disperse it toward evangelism. He got so worked up about it that, uh, in fact, he stepped back from the church um, in a way that you know, it's really, it's really, yeah, it's a shame. It's, it's, uh, it's saddening as well. Um, but many people still sing the songs that he had written, and some of them are still mentioned in the Bible. He was in the, in the, in the hymnal. Um, 
some of the songs that he wrote were specifically written for children. That's also why he had so much buy-in. Mm. His love that makes us happy. Oh, yeah. right? Songs like that that you hear one time, that like, God is catch love. On. They catch on. They just ha- he had a gift for that. And so it was, it was beautiful. You know, Adventist, Adventist uh, hymnody overall became much stronger after the Great Disappointment because they had a common experience of having about. gone through that and they sang about it. But instead of having songs that are really depressing and sad, compare that with German music in the Dark Ages. A lot of the songs that are in minor tunes are very sad. It's like we are forlorn in the, in the lost country. There's no more hope kind of idea. But here... These songs are not just singing about the disappointment, but they're singing about the divine appointment of the second coming in such a way that it has pathos, it has power, it, is, it, it just rings with freedom and liberty, right? Mm. And so the songs that they were writing um, just inspired that so much that uh, many other hymnals also included these songs, and uh, the Adventist hymnals also included songs by other denominations because they were focusing on some of these theolog- theological tenets mm. we could agree with, like yeah. the second coming. It's like, this is amazing. Let's talk about his salvation. Let's talk about this. Yeah, because it seems like as we come into Adventists, as you mentioned, you've got these guys, but the hymns are quite theological and unique to the experience of early Adventism in that we we, we are rediscovering yep. the doctrine of the second coming, rediscovering the doctrine of the Sabbath, yep. sanctuary. And so you have hymns that are written about that, which reflects the experience that the church was going through. Yes. And... And I find fascinating. Well, let me just let me just make this mention. Adam, could it be that because they had this common experience that the Lord obviously had ordained and is prophesied, that also their music was so united in reflecting that? Can it be that because our church right now may not have such a united experience that our music may be all over the place? Mm. So my hope is, my hope is that as we are experiencing revival and reformation and the Holy Spirit is descending on us for the loud cry, that the, it would be accompanied with the great outflow of musical, original musical mm. writing where it says, this is our experience. Yeah. This is our song. This is and out of the sudden, you know, people will catch on to that. So in some ways, it may be better that we don't have that much original music because it would be testifying of, you know, an experience that is not there. We're manufacturing something, if you will. Mm. But this is not to say that there's not a time for us to write music now. In fact, you see in 1941, uh, the hymnal was uh, published that was there for over 55 years. And the church members said, well, is this the only hymnal that we have? Are these the only songs that can be sung? The Sabbath school department started publishing hymns. Other, other departments started publishing hymns. People in their various regions all around the world were, were publishing hymns in their own languages. And so they came together for general conference sessions all the time. And at some point, Wayne Hooper and also Melvin West and others got together and were encouraged to perhaps compile a hymnal. And so what they did is, let's just get together and see what the what the music is like in our world church. And people were asked to submit music. From so before that, we just had scattered hymnals. Yeah, yeah, the world. that's what it was. And primarily, it was also by, you know, private, uh, private companies that had published and compiled hymns and then put them together. Copyright wasn't as strong back then. They were more pleased to know that their, their songs were published. And you may have gotten a little fee by you, you know, handing it over to them because it was already written and they could just adopt it. Um, whereas later, and especially in, in nowadays, copyright becomes very much an issue because that's often the only way that it could pay for the artist to actually have, you know, bread and butter. Hey, before we go into that, do you mind if we just go back, way back a bit? Let's do it. Um, and, and I think if we finish this podcast without discussing the Adventism connection to Methodism, Oh, yes. Or Wesley yes. will have done a disservice. So before we jump up to maybe the last 20 years or so, what's what role did the, the Wesley brothers or Wesley play? In, Actually, it, in yeah, it works in perfectly because the hymnal that we had prior to the current hum, one that we have right now was published in 1941. Okay. And as they all got together, the question that you just asked me is the question that Melvin West and that Wayne Hooper were asking themselves as well. said, what principles should we adhere to? Hmm. to make sure that the hymns that are being submitted are going to be suitable for divine divine worship for a multi-generational, multi-ethnic you know, hmm. congregation worldwide. And it can be in circulation for more than just one year or a camp meeting, hmm. but maybe for 30 years. And that's, by the way, uh, the time that they wanted to have the current hymnal be available. Since 1985, it was 30 years. Well, obviously, we have gone over that a little bit. 
But they went back to Methodism, which you rightly mentioned already. So the Wesleyan brothers, um, they were looking at the hymns and they enjoyed many of them, but they definitely did not enjoy the fact that they were not being sung with energy and with enthusiasm. And so they came up with these rules um, for singing as a part of the hymnal uh, produced the same year in 1780. And so listen to some, I'm, I'm abbreviating them a little bit, but you, so they, they came up with their own hymnal. Yes, the they did. And then they kind of added some rules to it. Yes, they did. Okay. Yes, they did. So these are rules. So imagine you getting into, into the church and you're being handed the hymnal and like you have a preface of any book in this preface, it says, by the way, this is how these hymns ought to be sung. And, it really harkens back to others uh, in the Reformation, even Bach himself, when he would play for his students, mm-hmm. he would play it for them. And then he would just, you know, make a remark such as, this is how it must be played. And so they were really, you know, they were really fond of the principles and adhering to that and coming as close to the divine perfection as possible. And so this is their attempt to do so. Um, one of the principles is this one. Learn these tunes before you learn any others. Afterwards, learn as many as you please. So they were saying, in order for you to have a good basis, you must learn this repertoire and then add other ones, you know, beyond it. And so they, they, they came together with some of the fundamental, you know, hymns that shared the Christian experience. So they wanted them to learn these tunes before they went to others. Number two, sing them exactly as they are printed here without altering or mending them at all. This is before you're making them your own, you know, really learn these to the best of your ability and go from there. Now, the church was fairly illiterate at that time. You know, printing press had only been invented a little bit before that. Now that hymns are, hymn books are in circulation, often it was the handmade to the Bible. They would then have it available. But even to this day, you see, you know, notes are, you know, all over the place. People may be able to follow it. They may not be able to follow it. And that's the beauty of the hymns. Hymns, you know, may not be as exciting to some because they're not that fast. Well, if they would be too fast, then the chronologically more advanced members of the church would not be able to keep up. But if they're too slow, then the children would not be able to sing them either. Sure. So it has to have a certain level that has a predictability that says, okay, I think I can do this. So the more verses you had, in, in a sense, actually made it better because there was repetition involved that then deepened the impression of the hymn. And so here you have them say, sing it exactly as they were written. Number three, sing all. See that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. So it wasn't supposed to be a concert, but just a few up front. In yes. fact, camp meetings back in the day. It wasn't just led by four or six or eight people. It was led by a host of people, maybe 50, 100 or 200 up front. And it was like a choir. But all they were singing were the hymns. All they were singing were what was printed. It wasn't some special music. What was special about it was that it had a special place in the worship service of saying, we really want to honor the Lord once again. That's what it was. His, 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 uh, his presence is really what makes something, uh, what, what makes this, uh, the music item you know, special. Sing lustily with a good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. (laughs) So you can imagine that the songs that Wesleyan brothers were writing were also songs that didn't really permit somebody to go to sleep. They wanted songs that actually had that energy. Uh, Let me just read, you know, the, the other three as well. Sing modestly. Do not bawl so as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation. Now listen. If you ever conducted a choir or you listen to a choir, what makes a choir unique is when they are blending. Blending together in such a way that you do not hear distinct voices out. And so what the Wesleyan brothers were saying is, we in our congregation could have such a sound that we're all blending in together. That's uh, that's quite amazing. Above all, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing Him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to do this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing. And that's that's beautiful, you know. I mean, imagine we would actually mean what we sing, right? I surrender all and actually mean it. Yeah. Not I surrender some. Or, you it know, always annoys me when song leaders say, sing sing like you mean it. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a... Wow. You shouldn't sing like... You right. shouldn't do anything like you mean it. You should sing it because you mean it. Correct. Or don't sing it at all. Yeah. Sit down. You know, that's the that's essentially what they were saying. And it really encouraged, it really encouraged him singing um, unlike others had seen. And it goes far away. I mean, Wesleyan Brothers are still known. I mean, they were this prolific writers, weren't they? Didn't they? Yeah. Excellent writers. They write numerous Excellent. classic hymns as well that right. we still sing today. Right. And it, I think it is, um, it is part of, it is part of understanding that as a minister, um, music takes part in worship 
And so perhaps taking the time to prepare a message, but also if you're not capable of doing so, somebody else being inspired of saying, hey, um, would you mind putting a, a poem to this or maybe put this, put this to song? Because that's what the Western brothers would do. They would spend some time in methodical Bible study, right? But then they also would spend some time in writing about it in such a way that it would make a dent. So if if you have a song to sing, I mean, you you rather preach, you know, for less time, but have a song and the people can sing the song and it remains with them, then give them a long discourse without a song and the people have a hard time remembering what you talked about. That's essentially what they were going for. So fast forward then. Um... With the, with the Adventist hymnal that then was published in 1985, you have a committee that comes together and includes 695 hymns with 224 scripture readings. And uh, you have it categorized in 12 subcategories. And it includes American, um, American spirituals. It includes Negro spirituals. It includes Bach chorales. It includes Scandinavian folk songs. Um, you know, other traditional and contemporary hymns as well. And it, has it from you know all, all 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 times. I mean, the oldest hymn in the hymnal, current hymnal, uh, is uh, number five five five. It's from the second century, and so that's the oldest hymnal that you have. So you have a variety, you know, spanning forth. And I think it's important for us to notice today that Jesus said we have to take out of the storehouse the old and the new. And so there's beauty of building on what has been before, and there's beauty, as you said, you know, to have music also today and being original written. And I do believe that the Lord is close to us today. And he is leading to us, and they're, they're powerful sermons that are being preached. Where are the musicians? Where are those that can write about it and actually you know, publish his, his fame abroad? What about the sanctuary? What about the state of the dead? What about the spirit of prophecy? Mm. People need to hear about this. And so if, uh, if you're preaching sermons that are not really worth singing about, you may really want to reconsider what you're preaching about. <laughs> Telling stories that no one can write a song. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. So. Let's kind of, so you mentioned before we took a little break or went back, Wayne Hooper. So we're going to just talk a bit about maybe the the Adventist hymn. But I also wanted to ask maybe as, as you articulate your answer to that, like what resources as well are out there today for for people? We'll kind of get into that. But so at least in the Adventist church today, we have this Adventist hymnal, which was put together in 1985, I think it was. It was. It was to kind of reflect and it's kind of become a, a benchmark. In, in our church but I don't know I don't know like it'd be nice to see more stuff or right. new stuff or whatever but yeah well Wayne Hooper and Melvin West uh, themselves in uh, their preface made it very clear that this hymnal was suitable perhaps for 30 years but then a new generation would come and they would need a hymnal themselves now obviously there was a 55 year period from the last hymnal until this one was published and so if we're following that trend, it may be a while until we have another hymn. Mm. But I would submit that perhaps we need to get together and um, collect the hymns that already have been written, the various theme songs for youth conferences, mm. for you know conferences in the com- in the unions or divisions. Right? There are several songs that have been very beautiful, beautiful theme songs. right? And you sing them for a week and you enjoy them, and then what happens to them? Yeah. Right. And so collecting them and saying, "Hey, these are wonderful," and maybe also challenging them and say, "Hey." We uh, would like to have more songs about the Sabbath and uh, the best 10 songs will make it into this publication. I mean, even in the Sabbath school quarterly, how awesome would it be if, you know, every week there may be a, a, a new hymn that, that, that is in mm. there that people could learn. So that we, you know, something, yeah. something like that. Yeah. It, it doesn't have to, be, have, have to be that big, but just the encouragement of saying, hey, God is still leading and there's still some songs that we can sing about. Many of the writers, even in this hymnal, they did never attend that their songs would be published. They just wrote them as a processing of their experience. But mm. it, it, it was so encouraging to others that they said, no, this really needs to be included. So in 1988, uh, Wayne Hooper and Melvin West said, we need to write a companion to the hymnal. We need to... Yeah, that's fascinating. That so is. the companion then said, okay, let's write a bit more about the history. Let's write a little bit more about, you know, how these hymns came about, why we included them, why we why we may have changed some of the verses. The or yeah, there's, a, there's a reasoning behind it. In fact... <laughs> There is something that they mention um, right in the beginning of the introduction. It says, For many worshippers, hymn singing is a mere routine in the church service, accepted but not necessarily enjoyed. For others, the pleasure of making a joyful noise to God often obscures the words that are being sung, and thereby this essential part of worship loses its full significance. And so they, they recognized it. Even back then, in 1988, they recognized it and said, Well, 
unless we make it meaningful and what can make it meaningful. So their attempt of saying, hey, let's include the stories. Let's include more of the biographical sketches of them and uh, share the theological tenets that we adhere to. And so that is something that during the pandemic, uh, people have approached me about and others. And I was privileged to get to know um, a man by the name of Charles Benjamin. And I think it's, it was, it was just orda- uh, divinely ordained. So I find myself at this camp meeting and I'm playing the piano. And um, the family is watching me attentively. And then I step down and then he looks at me and uh, I don't know this man, right? So he looks at me and he says, do you like technology? And I said, I like technology. I'm not very good at it, but uh, I like it. And then I looked at him and I said, do you like music? I said, I like it. I'm not very good at it, but I like it. I said, okay, well, can we work together? He said, that's what I was going to say. And so turns out this man is a developer. And he said, Erwin, people need to have more access to the hymns worldwide. What do you think if there was an app? And so one of the resources that I was privileged to be a part of is the No Hymn app that is available on Google Play and also on the iOS store. So what we have done is we have essentially have digitized what you have available right now with the hymns. You have the lyrics. And um, I recorded the, the hymns that now for churches or prison ministries or visitation or whatever you may want to use it for, you have the accompaniment that is not in a MIDI sound, like, you know, electronic synthetic sound. It's actually a real person playing. And uh, then you also have the background stories from the companion. Now, you said that very quickly, but I just want to make sure our listeners hear this. So there's you and a team of, of, of others have created an app. Yes. On Apple phones, on yes. Android phones, yes. Apple Store, Google Store, that has all the hymns. All the hymns. That are played by, by yourself. Yes. So live playing. Yes. Put onto the app. So Yes. So someone could just listen to it or they could use it for congregational Correct. amplification. Correct. Or whatever. Correct. And you said the stories are there as well. Yes. So it's fascinating. So it, the, it is. So you say the hymn, the app's called No Hymn. Yeah, it's a play on words. No Hymn is spelled K-N-O-W from in, knowing I, someone. I know you. Yes, right. So No Hymn. Hymn. And then Hymn is H-Y-M-N. Okay. And so um, this, is, this is part one of a larger vision. And the larger vision is, hey, we're building our heritage on what has gone before. Mm. But we also recognize that there are themes and topics that may be of interest for you today. And so we're hoping that this app can be the platform for theologians, for pastors, for, you know, members, right? To say, hey, I, this really speaks to me. I have a little, you know, chorus that may, I may have written. Or there may be a musician who reads that poem and says, hey, I could put that to song. And so to continue that heritage and say, hey, there's still songs to be written. And then use the very same platform. So you want people to submit and... Yes, that is, the, that is the ultimate vision. Although right now we have a lot of requests for, hey, can you do this for another hymnal in another language? Can okay. you do this for us because we don't have a piano? And throughout the pandemic, many of the musicians that would typically play were not able to play. Mm. And that's how it really started. People would call me on Friday afternoon and say, hey, my pianist can't come. Can you play these songs for me so I can use them for worship? Can you do this and that? And then after three, or th- three months or so of doing that, people then said, Erwin, why do we have to always ask you? Just record them all already. Mm. I said, oh, brothers. And, you know, the Lord really blessed. I recorded them in less than 10 days. Oh, wow. All the, you know, you know it's really 700 hymns or, or more because some of them uh, are not itemized with numbers. But it was a great blessing going through that and reading through the lyrics and mm. seeing that. And so you can use it also just as a background player. That's one of the resources that is available. Okay. Obviously, if you're interested in some of the historical a- aspects that we just touched on today, yeah. um, I also had written about That's that right, in my dissertation okay. because it is a case study on congregational hymn singing. So we look at the characteristics and the benefits. So if you type in my name and type in um, dissertation, my name will probably uh, okay. pop up and you can read about it more. There's more to be said. And with music, there's more caught than is taught. And that's why it is so important that we're actually actively involved in, you know, singing and in playing. And I'm hoping that if you're listening to this and you have children or grandchildren, that you will encourage for them to continue. Because by being a Protestant, by being a reformer, by being part of the Adventist church, music is integral to worship. It's true. I think, I mean, we often say, but I think, and I think you would agree, the best songs are still to be written. Yes. And the best songs are still yes. to be sung. And and like you said, music reflects our experience. And I yes. think what God's people and movement still have to go through yes is is far greater and more intense in a sense than what we have been through in the past yes yes i think that will that will lend itself to to new original music that reflects the experience coming up it does and i think that coming with the revival that we will experience as a people i also think that music will not just be a reflection of that but will also be proactive in that 
You remember that when Joshua went around the walls of Jericho, the musicians were right up front. Mm. You remember when they would have the army, sometimes the musicians were right up front. That was their weapon. <laughs> and so I think that even to this day, as the law is being introduced, like they were holding up the tabernacle or they were holding up the Ark of the Covenant, um, the musicians, as they were blowing their shofar horn, as they were singing their songs of praise, I do believe that the second coming is going to be ushered in by a certain sense of music. And um, just to come back to the various uh, powers that be with music, um, it is obvious that Daniel, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation are... They are together, right? They're, they're paired together. And in Daniel chapter 3, you see that nobody was asked to bow down in front of that image without the music being played. Well, can it be today that music, if it is not used for divine purposes, that there is a counterfeit of music that may try to unite people in such a way that they succumb to that mark of the beast, if you will, at the very end of time? Mm. I do believe so. And so it is important for us to counteract that by actually truly worshiping God in spirit and in truth so that we do not succumb to other types of music that unite us more into, you know, worshiping the devil and bowing down before his image. True. Well, appreciate everything you've shared. It's been fascinating. And I'd love to do another another podcast with you another time. Yeah. Um, unpack some of, some of these aspects in more detail, but maybe just end on one, maybe more. One question. Who's your favorite hymn writer? And I know when you ask a musician or a creative, who's your favorite one? They uh, they sometimes have a hard time picking just one out. But if there's one that maybe stands out to you today as a favorite hymn writer or, or, or yeah, that you have. Yeah. Why? Well, I think that the go-to for me has always been Amazing Grace. Um, uh. But I will say this, that recently... Um, when I recorded all the hymns and I was going through them and I was also reviewing the stories Mm -hmm. that there was another song that really stuck out to me and uh, it hadn't really it didn't stand out to me quite as much before but that is the song of There Is a Fountain There Is a Fountain Filled with Blood by by William Cooper and um, I'll just mention this that in the hymn you have six stanzas involved and this man was found himself in a mental institution. People thought that that's where he belonged. And while he's there, he's reading the Bible and he's really getting a greater sense of what God has planned for him. He has this inhibition that when he's speaking, he is stuttering. He is, he's not really capable of expressing himself just the way that he wants to. And uh, in this hymn that he has, he's talking about what God has done for him. And then he puts his personal experience in that. And he says, there's a nobler, or there in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue is ransomed from the grave. And I love that because the hymns are so powerful of speaking about Christ in particular, but they also often share our personal experience in that. And I felt that, hey, I may have inhibitions today. I may feel inadequate to, to sing his praises, but God is saying, I inhabit the praises of Israel. And so the very infirmities that we may have, the, you know, the, the baggage that we may have carried, the past that may seem to want to take over, whatever it may be. If you think of William Cooper, he is saying that although he may have these inhibitions, he may have these limitations, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And so I think that... Um, if you have listened to this podcast and if there's anything that can stand out to you is include music as an integral part of your worship and your personal devotions and public public uh, ministry so that you give an opportunity to be reminded that mm. Jesus is forgiving you. If you ask him, you confess your sin and he's forgiving you and he wants to transform you so that you can be fashioned into his likeness. Thank you. I love, the, I love both those hymns and have deep, rich meaning. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for sharing. Gladly. And continue to allow the Lord to use you in your ministry, as particular in 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 music ministry, inspiring other people. And I pray that we see more hymns, more more songs that reflect what we believe and what we're going through today. Amen. Thank you for those who've joined us on our Lineage Journey podcast. We hope and pray that you have enjoyed this. Do subscribe to our channel so you get regular updates, and there'll be more podcasts um, coming out soon. May God bless you. And remember, you can always check out more information at lineagejourney.com. 
Thank you and God bless. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Lineage Journey is supported by your generous donations. Did you know that you can donate on a monthly basis? Any amount from $2 to $100 or whatever you decide through patreon.com forward slash lineage journey. Your donations go towards the cost of producing our varied content and we thank you for your support.